The Student Voting Network podcast is produced by students at a national level. The views expressed in this podcast are not reflective of any organization affiliated with the Student Voting Network. Dr. Greg Williams, we've been looking forward to having a conversation for some time now. And, you know, unfortunately, we've just got a little sidetracked because I've got a lot of tests and stuff. So I'm just thankful for you for uh, making the time to talk to the Student Voting Network podcast tonight. Sure, Benjamin. And I want to thank you for inviting me to have this meaningful conversation with you and for the opportunity to share this critical information with your listening audience. So the reason why we wanted to chat today is because we wanted to talk to listeners about how and why election integrity and election security uh, relating to HR1 is really quite integral to the advancement of student voting rights and American democracy. And that's a big reason why we have Dr. Greg Williams here um, on the episode to talk to us a little bit about this. Um, Greg, if you could maybe just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about some of your um, you know, work in the space. You know, I became a PhD in, in human and organizational development, concentrating mostly on transformative learning for social and economic justice. And my dissertation was a political discourse analysis of just how truth claims of voter fraud influence public policy. So I researched how the repetition of demonstrably false truth claims produces wide acceptance. And in that, uh, I went to uh, arguing that cognitive bias and deception play significant roles. And I examined the public discourse of the claims of voter fraud. So my dissertation asked two vital questions. First, how do proponents of strict voter ID laws frame their cases for relevant legislation? And then where does the research originate that they cite in state legislative hearings to support their claims? And so from a content analysis method of tallying the critical words, phrases, and concepts, I tailored a discourse analysis discipline. And while analyzing grammatical structures, I really focused more on the specific social, cultural, and political significances, using terms and phrases such as those, diseased, others, are stealing our way of life. The political discourse analysis revealed that voter ID advocates dehumanize the alleged perpetrators of voter fraud, often referencing them as illegals or illegal aliens. And so my, pri- my uh, five primary findings revealed how voter ID proponents bolster their claims, first, arguing that their opponents willfully undermine democracy with voter fraud, second, fostering solidarity, dividing us from the fraudulently voting others, three, cultivating racism, uh, fourth, was uh, manipulating legislators with urgent warnings, And then fifth was uh, buttressing their arguments with anecdotes, racist sources, and demonstrable lies. And so by revealing the persuasive powers of such techniques, my paper provided the very first qualitative critical nuance to the dozens of quantitative studies that were already out there that had addressed voter fraud. And so for now, for the last three and a half years, uh, which actually overlapped before before I got my, uh, my PhD, I've been advancing my voter protections research as a fellow with the Murray Fielder Center for Democracy, Leadership, and Education. And then since early 2020, I've been a founding board member of Count Us In, where I help to educate citizens on voting rights and protections and combat voter suppression to create political equity among historically disenfranchised communities. And really, I just really enjoy 
connecting complex data to reveal how voter fraud disinformation leads to voter suppression, and I'm genuinely motivated by researching democracy and the whole myriad of voting issues. And so just re very recently, I became a board member of the Sissy Mary Sue Education Fund, which provides education, training, and opportunities to learn about social and ecological justice. And there we teach and demonstrate equity and anti-racist, shared humanity and sustainability practices. And so Benjamin, while I generally enjoy working in the nonprofit policy research, um, I'm also interested in uh, teaching at the university level, which I'm doing some talking with some different uh, institutions currently. But uh, anyway, in a nutshell, that's that's kind of what my background looks like. Well, that's fantastic. And, you know, usually on this podcast, we have a lot of students and we have a lot of um, people who aren't necessarily PhD holders who we're talking to kind of on the on the ground about um, what the student experience is like for them and, and how they sort of interface at the very local campus level. And so we're just really excited that um, someone with your experience is willing to talk to us about election integrity, election security, and sort of how these uh, two components of HR1, which you know, let's be honest here, rip in peace to HR1, how these two very important components are really, uh, I think, understudied in the actual evaluation of what what an in you know election integrity looks like in practice. What does election security look like in practice? And more importantly, like what are the threats to these to these um, concepts? And and so bearing that in mind, you know, we have a couple points that we wanted to work through tonight. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about dark money. And I know that it has always been around to, to some level, to some degree, but, you know, when you're talking about fairness in politics, dark money seems to be one of the key components that erodes the efficacy of democracy. And I'm just wondering if you can share some of your thoughts, either through some of your research or just through, you know, some of your thoughts about dark money in and of itself. Uh, you're absolutely right. This is a, such a, a great topic to share with, uh, with your listening audience, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're one of the primary targets of, of uh, the voter suppression tactics. And, um, and it's a pleasure to be here and have the opportunity to have this discussion, Benjamin. Uh, dark money, that's a really good, really good point to, that, uh, that adds so much uh, robustness to this conversation. If I may, I'd like to preface that point by talking a little bit about election integrity and how that leads up to dark money. If I may, Benjamin? Yeah, please, by all means. In the U.S., there's a growing political debate that's been raising critical questions about the integrity of democracy. You know, if inclusive public discourse exi truly existed, it would address actual evidence, real evidence of the alleged voter fraud and its solution being strict voter ID laws. So in my writings related to threats to democracy, I've implicated the self-serving interest of a tiny but powerful minority of super wealthy individuals, along with their families and their corporations, that are manipulating state legislation nationwide to maintain their self-benefiting status quo. So when election outcomes fail to represent the citizen majority, moreover, the voters' intentions, then electoral integrity and democracy are at great risk. A diminishing democracy is only going to result in greater economic inequality, which has been growing here in the U.S., early around the world, but specifically in the U.S. since the late 1970s. And I argue that voter suppression only prolongs further economic inequality, thus the downward circular process continues to spiral year after year, even decade after decade. 
So Benjamin, I'm sure your listeners are, are interested in just how secure elections impact student voters. And I would say so. <laughs> yeah, I, I would hope so. They should be. So besides establishing 18 as the federal voting age, you're probably aware that the 26th Amendment prohibits interfering with that voting right by the U.S. or by any state on account of age. Well, it finds that youth voter suppression is an escalating problem, noting recent court decisions that specific state policies violated the 26th Amendment. It also calls on Congress to take further steps to defend the right to vote. So, you know, when people relocate from one state to another, as students often do, the law requires that they obtain new driver's licenses, which is no easy task. Now, after new residences, many people register to vote there as well. However, not all relocated voters think to cancel their voter registrations on the way out the door. I mean, who realistically thinks when they're loading up their cars, oh, I got to stop by the election office to ask them to remove me from the voter roll? It's just not realistic. So that doesn't mean that they're voting in multiple states or voting districts, though. Yet voter ID advocates shamelessly claim that that's what they're up to in order to help make their case for strict voter ID. Benjamin, let me tell you precisely what I'm talking about here. I know you know the name Chris Kobach. He was Kansas's former Secretary of State and ex-President Trump's de facto head of the short-lived Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity, better known colloquially as the Voter Fraud Commission. Well, Kobach engineered an elaborate disinformation campaign that resulted in the 2011 Kansas Secure and Fair Elections Act, also known by its acronym as the SAFE Act. Now listen to this. Kobach used 2010 Kansas Census and Department of Vehicles data to subtract the number of voter-aged Kansans, whether they were legally eligible to vote, vote or not, from the total of current Kansas-issued driver's licenses and non-driver IDs. Now he argued the difference of about 30,000 proved, that's his word, proved that thousands were casting fraudulent votes. However, Kobach appears not to have accounted for the 16 and 17 year old teenagers who would have had driver's licenses but were too young to register to vote. Now, out of state students attending Kansas universities or colleges who registered to vote there also would have helped explain Kobach's discrepancies. So therefore his argument is just so incredibly flawed. Now, presuming that he knows these facts as he is a leading authority, it's also blatantly dishonest. So Kobach's faulty arguments and blatant lies have only helped to engineer similar suppressive laws across the country. After all, there's been a lot of states in, uh, in, in the red states that have come to Kobach over the years asking for his guidance and setting up their own suppression ID, uh, ID laws. There's plenty of empirical evidence showing the burden of these inconveniences of obtaining voter ID and re-registering pose to racial and ethnic minorities, older citizens, students, and lower income Americans in general. Now in that Kansas testimony, they continually used unsighted anecdotal evidence and never used a single iota of empirical evidence. Kobach's national policy expert, Richard Fry, speculated under oath that 34 national students, and I quote him on this, committed voter registration fraud and less than 10 may have voted illegally. Now, even if his wild speculation was accurate, these numbers were by statistical definition grossly insignificant. So Benjamin, let's fast forward 10 years to the present day to hit on how secure elections can impact the student voters. Does that sound okay? 
That sounds good to me. And I just want to emphasize that we should never let the truth get in the way of a good story. If you're trying to sell some, um, <laughs> some snake oil. The other thing I'm thinking though, and, and, and maybe you know a little bit more about this than I do. My understanding about elections is that they are typically run by the secretary of state. And so I find it interesting that I, I'm not a hundred percent sure if this is how Kansas runs their elections, but if Chris Kobach was secretary of state of Kansas, while running such a fraudulent election that speaks pretty largely to his inability to run a fair and free election. Uh, but that's, again, just sort of my uh, perspective lo looking at it as a, as, a secretary of, as a secretary of state. Very interesting to me. Well, but yeah, to your point. Stacey Abrams would agree with you on that. Uh, just ask her how the secretary of state, uh, Brian Kemp, was able to help his own election for governor down there. Interesting how that works. Purging hundreds of thousands of people from the voter rolls. Yeah, that's how that's how it works. You're right. The state uh, secretary of state has no business in uh, being a referee in the um, especially especially when they're running for governor at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> a conflict of interests, maybe. Slightly. To the the HR one, the For the People Act, uh, in in every state. H.R. 1 would establish automatic voter registration, which is really important. And if any individual provides information to certain state agencies, including colleges and universities, they'll automatically be registered to vote unless they opt out. So 16 and 17 year olds also would be eligible for automatic registration, though, of course, it wouldn't take effect for them until they turn 18, of course. Now, this set of uh, this uh, for the People Act, H.R. 1 or S1, as it's called on the Senate side, is the most robust set of pro-democracy voter protections in a generation. And it's important not to lose sight of the sad fact that the violent January 6th Capitol insurrection resulted in a deadly riot incited by false claims of mass voter fraud. And adding insult to injury, or maybe just amplifying one tragedy with another, in less than a month after that, many state legislators already began exploiting that tragedy by introducing a whopping 106 bills to make it harder to vote it's clear that we need federal level voting protections. Now, these laws make mail-in voting and early voting more complicated. They impose stricter voter ID laws uh, uh, and, and they, make, they make defective voter purges more likely among other things. Now, since that initial month that followed the attack on our democracy, 49 states have introduced more than 400 bills with provisions that restrict voting access. Now, this 2021 wave of voting restrictions which is the most aggressive we've seen in more than a decade of, of tracking state voting laws, is largely motivated by false and often racist allegations about voter fraud. Now, in the riots aftermath, many Republican leaders tried to distance themselves from the mobsters and those that indulged them. Even Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said the mob was fed lies. And he also suggested they were provoked by the president and other powerful people. So our nation was paralyzed by that attack on our democracy and those purveyors of disinformation are using the same baseless lies that energized it to begin with in order to drive a shocking number of laws through just to trounce your listening audience's voting rights. Now, according to a July 22nd Brennan Center update, 18 states already had enacted 30 laws that'll make it tougher for Americans to vote. Let me throw uh, three names at you that I know you're gonna recognize, Benjamin, and I'm sure a lot of your listening audience will too. Uh, Michael Burns, the national director of the Campus Vote Project, has illuminated how HR1 would help students better understand how to vote. One of the students' obvious barriers 
is that they're highly mobile and newer to the process. Obviously, right? I mean, the, the legislation specifically speaks to the responsibility of higher education institutions and right. the voting process, which includes authorizing colleges and universities as voter registration agencies and requiring them to have a campus vote coordinator. Now, the coordinator's responsibilities would include distributing election information to students, such as voter registration, uh, polling locations, and even how to find transportation to those voting locations. Now, HR1's Title III is all about election security, and it would create public sector grant programs for election security and, and um, election infrastructure projects, including renovations to voting systems. And um, it also would set up private sector grants for companies involved with research and instrument development for enhancing election security. And it would instruct the president and executive branch agencies to issue a national strategy, strategy to defend against cyber attacks, uh, to influence operations, uh, disinformation campaigns, and other actions that could undermine our democratic institutions. Now to make the election infrastructure more resilient, HR1 would also require voter verified paper ballots and the Election Assistance Commission would issue state grants to replace the paperless voting system. Additional grants would also be authorized for post-election uh, risk limiting audits, which use statistical methodologies to guarantee the accuracy of, of vote counts. So these, uh, these security and integrity policies would help to safeguard against authoritarian efforts to compromise election infrastructure and, and cast doubt on the legitimacy of our entire uh, election outcomes. Well, the Higher Education Act of 1965 already requires colleges to furnish voter registration forms to students and to make good faith efforts to render widely available voter registrations. But many colleges don't even know this requirement exists and there's very little enforcement of it even when they're aware of it, but ignore it. So HR1 or the For the People Act might just help bring those institutions that aren't as focused on this, at least to a minimum standard and campuses not already doing well or that choose to improve on this area in the future would be rewarded by HR1 with grants. Now that can include sponsoring more comprehensive on-campus voter mobilization efforts or providing transportation to the polls or inviting candidates to speak on campus. So HR1 includes other provisions also that aren't necessarily specific to higher education but would be particularly helpful for any young voter. For example, Clarissa Unger, the project director of Students Learn Students Vote Coalition has outlined how this legislation mandates that states provide online voter registration applications, making re registering more accessible to younger people. And Burns explained further that the bill would require states to allow same day voter registration, which would provide a fail safe for students, very likely leading to, leading to uh, much higher turnout rates. So it also would expand voting by mail, allowing no excuse absentee uh, voting. So there are also provisions that require every state to permit two weeks of early in-person voting, including on weekends for at least 10 hours a day, and that polling locations be open for at least four hours outside the traditional nine to five working hours. Uh, Maxim Thorpe, the new CEO of the Campus Election Engagement Project uh, has uh, suggested that this could be particularly helpful for promoting college student turnout who, after all, they uh, try to vote when their classes aren't in session. Makes sense? Yeah. Yeah, that really does lead into uh, a little bit of a, an explanation on dark money, which is, you know, you alluded to is front and center in this discussion. And really, without including 
a discussion of the Koch brothers or the Koch network, no real meaningful or credible discussion of dark money in politics is possible. Uh, with its countless tentacles that reach into so many different entities and involve a vast cotter of organizations and influential individuals, the mechanism that the Cokes have organized has become re recognized collectively as the Coketopus. So in my dissertation, <laughs> I talked at great length about this, and I, I, I investigated how deception, which is a useful tool for influence peddlers, plays a role in enabling the expanding passage of voter ID laws. So examples of voter ID influence peddlers include think tank institutions, such as Heritage Foundation, their agents, such as Hans von Spakovsky, incidentally, the most influential voter fraud enabler that hardly anyone has ever heard of, elected officials such as Kobach, and conservative news media such as Fox. Now, the influence entails their billionaire financial support system, such as the Koch brothers of Koch Industries, which is the second largest US private corporation, along with their entire network of influence. Well, the Koch network also includes Rupert Murdoch. And according to, uh, to Murdoch's biography, the global media mogul lists News Corp among his holdings. Now, News Corp comprises Dow Jones and Company and the Wall Street Journal. Murdoch also founded Fox News. He once owned 21st Century Fox and still owns the, the New York Post. Notably, these listings include only his US holdings. He's originally from Australia where he still owns a lot of different uh, organizations uh, in the media as well as uh, he owns uh, several news agencies in uh, the UK as well. But uh, I've also addressed how these influence peddlers can persuade such large audiences. Now further, a phenomenal, award-winning political journalist with the New Yorker, Jane Mayer, wrote the most incredibly well-researched 2016 book entitled Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. Ben, I strongly suggest that uh, everyone listening to this podcast read that book, and it's available on Kindle. I bet you've heard of it too, Benjamin. I have, and we'll make sure to include information in the episode description for people who are interested in reading it. Fantastic. I, I recommend that everybody in America read it, but absolutely anybody in, in uh, college should definitely read that book. Well, in addition to Mayer's work, there are several other reports that cover the Koch's extensive network of nonprofit organizations. And to spread the influence of these groups, not merely on politics, but even on U.S. education, individual and corporate donors donate vast amounts of money completely undetected. Now get this, Benjamin. In researching college and university programs, Mayer found 238 of them affiliated with Koch-funded organizations. Now, her investigation, very thorough investigation, showed that, that their school affiliates, uh, that is the, the Koch uh, network school affiliates, recruit students to work for political campaigns. These programs also try vehemently to eradicate uh, any liberal educational predisposition that's out there. Now, near, near the Koch Brothers Kansas headquarters, conveniently placed not too far from Kobach, a Koch-supported group offers online education to public school students. They teach things like President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal did not alleviate the Great Depression, and that the federal government, not corporate America, triggered the 2008 recession. These specific incidents further exemplify Daniel Levitin's 2017 weaponized lies how to think critically in the post-truth era. So Levitin bridges the related phenomena of cognitive bias and deception. And he teaches college students how to evaluate evidence and detect deception. 
his studies find that human brains tend to value vivid stories over statistics, which is pretty intuitive, really. But Kobach, Von Spakovsky, the Koch Network, and others who claim the need for voter ID in order to thwart widespread voter fraud use these phenomena to their fullest advantage. So you mentioned Von Spakovsky. The name itself sounds villainous, but I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more um, because you mentioned earlier how this person might be one of the most important vote suppression advocates that we've never heard of. Can you talk a little bit more about Hans von Spakovsky and let our listeners know a little bit more about his writings on election integrity? Just on, on Von Spakovsky, he's, he's a former commissioner on the, on the Federal Election Commission and a U.S. Department of Justice official from the George W. Bush administration. He, he was absolutely instrumental in helping to get the um, courts to uh, overturn in the 2000 election that, uh, that sent the, uh, the Florida recount to the Supreme Court, where, of course, eventually it became you know, a five to four decision in the Supreme Court that gave George W. Bush the, uh, the, the election. So uh, Bush uh, rewarded him by putting uh, him into his, uh, uh, his administration, which was an extremely controversial call. Eventually, he was, uh, they removed him because he was so, such a controversial pick. Uh, there was the, the, the lifers there in the, in the uh, administration were wanting no part of having him on board. But uh, currently, he's a, he's a senior legal fellow and has been for years um, and a manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative at Heritage Foundation's conservative think tank. Uh, So his background depicts why GOP officials revere him and eagerly would pass his public policy proposals into legislation. His reports and op-eds have served as leading expert testimony for many states' successful voter ID legislations. Actually, I was able to force him begrudgingly to admit that his statements to the New Yorker's Jane Mayer, in which he claimed academic studies supported his argument that voter voter fraud was was widespread, were utterly false. Uh, there was not one study that backed him up on that. And I called him out on that. And I'm sure he didn't take too kindly to that. No, no, to say the least. Uh, it was really, it was really quite a remarkable co- uh, email exchange I had with him. Now I give him credit for, for responding to me. When I, when I first reached out to him, um, I let him know that I was a college student, didn't tell him where I went to school or what I was studying, anything like that. Sure didn't tell him I was a PhD student working on my district. At that, at that time, I was I was not even working on my dissertation. I, I wasn't even focused on on um, electoral uh, cl- claims of electoral fraud. I was just doing a simple paper for a, one of my first classes that I took in my PhD program, and um, it was this uh, exchange I had with him where, you know, I went back to him and said, "Hey, look, uh, I'm, I've tried and tried to find some of these academic studies that you've talked about, and I just I can't find one study. In fact, I even had my my uh, doctoral librarian give me a hand with the research. I asked her to help me out, see if, see if you can find something on this topic related to uh, a voter fraud, a widespread voter fraud that shows that, that it's real. And she came back a couple of days later, said, Greg, I have looked and looked and looked. I can't find anything. I'm so sorry. I said, don't apologize. That's what I was hoping you'd come back with. <laughs> so I went, that, gave me, uh, that gave me a lot of uh, you know, arrows in my amulet to go after uh, von Spakovsky and I, I called him out and I said, look, 
uh, I can't find these these studies that you talked about. He came back and said, well, Greg, look, uh, uh, my uh, my buddy uh, at the Heritage Foundation, we've written studies, uh, we've written reports on this. And I said, oh, I know that. I, and, I'm, and I'm using those those uh, reports. I appreciate it. In fact, I've got all kinds of those uh, reports from think tank institutions on both sides, along with op-eds, uh, blog, blog statements, uh, you know, letters to the editor, uh, books, but I can't find anything that's been written by a university published press or a peer-reviewed article, which you said were out there. And that's really what I want. He said, well, Greg, if that's not good enough, what I'm trying to give you, then obviously you're, uh, you're, you're just a, a, a biased academic. I said, well, that's true. I'm, I'm a biased academic, but, uh, but that doesn't mean I'm not trying to get to the truth. Now, you're the one that said that these academic studies were, so I kept coming back. You, you're, you told Jane Mayer in a sit-down interview that academic studies supported your argument. I'm just asking you, give me two or three of your favorite ones. And then he, uh, he got really upset, it looked like, in his uh, response to me. My, uh, my dissertation committee chair and, and mentor, I, who I was copying in on all those uh, uh, email exchanges, came back and said, Greg, I think you've uh, you got under his skin. Great job, was his, his follow-up comment. <laughs> he said, uh, I think you're onto something here. This may, may be a, a topic for your dissertation, which obviously it became. So uh, I, I credit uh, uh, the, um, the fraudulent Hans von Spakovsky in leading me to my dissertation and my current uh, research interest. So that kind of went, uh, took a few minutes to get to, but that's sort of the backstory on on Vonspakovsky, uh, along with why uh, it motivated me to study what I study. Super enlightening. I think that anytime we are learning more about the people who are working behind the scenes to erode the trust that people have in democracy, uh, the more light we shine on them, the more likely we are to recognize them for the what sounds like fraud that they're uh, committing on, you know, the public discourse about the topic. And, you know, we, we talk a little bit about Von Spakovsky. We talk a little bit about the Koch network. Now, one of the things that has really, I think, enabled uh, dark money to do as much damage as it has done. And I don't think that this is a controversial statement by any stretch is I think that it has eroded campaign transparency. There are many instances, obviously, where it is unclear who is donating to a campaign or in what way a campaign is raising money. So I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how HR1 would aim to address campaign finance transparency, potentially deter corruption, uh, prevent foreign money from infiltrating elections, uh, and, and maybe talk about other adjacent uh, legislation that exists. Yeah, yeah, great point there, Benjamin. Well, yeah, like you said, the, the, the bill seeks to increase campaign finance transparency, deter corruption, and prevent foreign money from infiltrating U.S. elections. So over the past decade, authoritarian regimes have aggressively funneled covert money, huge amounts of covert money, through legal loopholes to buy influence in U.S. elections and throughout public discourse, to, 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 uh, to influence our public discourse. So therefore, we urgently need policies to block foreign cash flows in the U.S. politics. Now, a logical starting point for this topic is the 2010 Disclose Act, which is an acronym for democracy is strengthened by casting light on spending in elections. Now, this act illustrates the conflict 
between the goals of achieving sufficient disclosure and avoiding burdensome regulation. Uh, the Disclosure Act also responded to the Supreme Court Citizens United decision by addressing, among other things, uh, corporate disclosure that accepted uh, federal election campaign expenditures. Now, besides disclosing the identity of corporations and other organizations that are engaged in, in independent spending, it would have required donors' identities of sums above a certain level. Further, it would have mandated transfers to other organizations that make independent expenditures and transfers among affiliates, as well as information concerning whether any, any donations were designated for specific intents. So the Disclose Act also would have enhanced disclaimer requirements by naming both the ad sponsors of significant funders and the highest ranking officer if a significant funder were a corporation or other organization. Now, in their minority views, the Republican House Administration Committee members complained of the legal thicket one must navigate to comply with the campaign finance law. They argued that the bill would impose still higher compliance costs and deter free speech. It's, it's similar to how Justice Anthony Kennedy spoke in the Citizens United proceedings. Uh, it's, its disclaimers were characterized as being exceptionally onerous. So notably, H.R. 1 does include the Honest Ads Act, which has received bipartisan and industry, industry support. This act would require all digital ads to disclose their funders in a clear and conspicuous manner and bar foreign nationals from buying online ads that, that mention candidates. Furthermore, the digital platforms with over 50 million unique visitors per month, like Facebook and Twitter, would be required to maintain public databases of all online political ads, providing the public with critical information on ad buyers and their target audiences. Now, these provisions would limit the scope and effectiveness of authoritarian disinformation campaigns, which routinely use online ads with divisive social and political content in order to target Americans and further divide us. Very interesting. Um, just kind of taking all that in, especially as you talk about the Disclose Act, um, and we'll have information, of course, about that in the episode description as well. But um, I think a lot of listeners may not necessarily have heard of the Disclose Act compared to H.R. 1. And so it's really interesting to know that there is lateral legislation, which has been um, suggested. And, you know, it's an interesting space to watch, especially as we've seen, again, H.R. 1 sort of fall by the wayside. Um, Are there any other points that you think would be relevant about campaign transparency um, as it relates to like student voting? Like, what is it about um, the campaign transparency aspect that you think might help benefit the student vote uh, nationally? Well, uh, there are a couple of, uh, of points. Uh, one, now, the um, empowering small donors or campaign finance empowerment uh, is another subtitle under campaign finance transparency, which would allow political party committees to create designated small donor accounts uh, that are subject to fewer restrictions than other party committee accounts. And now, current law limits the amount of direct support that traditional party organizations can give their own candidates due to the risk that large donations to the parties will be used to circumvent candidate contribution limits. So such, um, such restrictions mean that party organizations are subject to significantly more regulation than super PACs and other outside groups. This provision tries to counter this imbalance and encourage the parties to raise more small contributions, 
Now, this area of HR1 certainly should allow many more students to participate in the political participation process of democracy. And it would enable them to establish special accounts funded by donors who give $200 or less. Uh, these, they, they could uh, donate to any federal candidate up to 10,000, which is twice the current limit of $5,000 and spend unlimited funds in, in uh, coordination with candidates. But a small donation matching uh, public financing system as outlined in HR1 could help reduce longstanding funding disparities for those not super wealthy. So Benjamin, small donor empowerment is all about election integrity and improving student voices in the democratic process. So this point circles right back around to those three nonprofit student organization leaders that I was quoting you earlier on about how secure elections impact student voters. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. And and I know that you mentioned a little bit earlier about how there has been, um, via loopholes, a lot of funding that has been provided to um, various campaigns in the United States from authoritarian governments. Now, I always like to bring this point up when I'm talking to people. And oftentimes when I bring it up, I start seeing the eye rolls and I start hearing the complaints and the groaning and the moaning. But I do personally believe that countering foreign interference in American elections is probably one of the most important aspects um, just from a national security standpoint. And I'm wondering, um, you know, as it relates to campaign transparency and dark money, how might HR1 counter foreign interference? Oh, yeah, yes. Um, the, there's an area of, uh, of HR1 that, that uh, d- devotes specifically to uh, reporting foreign uh, foreign election interference, and this area would require campaigns and PACs to report contacts with foreign governments, which involve offers of unlawful campaign contributions or other extensive collaboration to influence our elections. Now, as the Mueller report documented during the 2016 presidential election, Donald Trump's campaign had multiple contacts with agents allegedly working on behalf of foreign governments which in some cases claimed to possess possess opposition research that helped his campaign. Nonetheless, it failed to disclose these meetings to law enforcement. So this provision of the the, uh, HR1 would, uh, would achieve three critical objectives, Benjamin. First, it would require political committees to notify the FBI and the Federal Election Commission of all contacts with any representative of a foreign entity that involves offers to make a contribution or to influence the U.S. election in some way. It would also mandate that political committees establish specific internal reporting and compliance mechanisms to ensure accurate and timely reporting. And then finally, it would direct the FBI to submit an annual report to Congress concerning notifications of reportable foreign contacts made by political committees. It's interesting to me because as I listened to the description of that, I I found myself getting a little lost because I almost can't imagine a a system that would exist um, that would mandate such counters. And and so I just, you know, again, I I can't stress enough from a national security perspective, I think it would be a really um, beneficial utilization of legislation uh, to to protect our election. Very comprehensive, like you said, Benjamin. So, you know, I I talked to you a little bit about the campaign transparency and you were talking specifically about how um, small donors would benefit from, um, you know, the transparency endemic to uh, people who are running campaigns. 
Can you talk to our listeners more about the actual empowerment of small donors? Because I know anyone who's listening is a small donor. There are um, <laughs> no corporate sponsorships on this podcast. What would HR1 do to empower small donors and how might student voters uh, benefit from the empowerment of small donors by HR1? It gives more people a chance to have a voice in the political process. You know, uh, for most of this, for, for most of our country's history, uh, it's been very limited on who has a who has an opportunity to voice their their positions and their beliefs. Uh, when we started out in the, um, you know, at the beginning of the of the of the nation, when when we started going to the polls to vote for president, it was uh, it was only white men that uh, that owned property that could vote. So we've slowly, it's taken a long time to, uh, to, to vote through women's suffrage. Uh, then the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act came along in the, in the 60s, which, uh, which allowed, uh, you know, it got, got rid of the Jim Crow laws, which made it more, more po- uh, possible for a lot more people to be able to, to cast their votes. But it's always a struggle to have, uh, you, know, you know, for people to, to have the right to, to vote in this country, as, as it is in other countries too. But uh, it's been a slow, a slow grind, and just in the in the last several decades, since you know, in the 1960s, when when we passed the Voter Rights Act, uh, people thought that um, wow, that's you know the end of uh, of voter suppression, and uh, it was up until that point that the uh, the Republicans were always the party about fighting for for uh, for voting rights, and it really wasn't until uh, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act where that flipped around when. When uh, Lyndon B. Johnson uh, signed the Voting Rights Act, he, he famously said, "What have I done? Uh, you know, I've given uh, the, the the South over to the Republican Party, which is exactly what happened." So you saw the, uh, the Democrats, uh, you know, the Dixiecrats running over to the Republican side, and since then it's been the Democratic Party vi- uh, fighting for voting rights. This century, after uh, after what happened in Florida, before then, and I know I'm getting off a little bit in the weeds. And, and maybe not answering you specifically, Benjamin, but but uh, before the before the Florida f- uh, fiasco of, of 2000, uh, there re- there wasn't a whole lot of grumbles. There were there was some uh, some talk about the Democratic Party committing ma- uh, massive voter fraud in order to influence elections, but it wasn't part of the GOP's discourse. But the what the 2000 elections did was it sh- it, it gave them the opportunity to start a whole new line of of argument. And since then, they've they've done whatever they can to try to suppress voters who they believe that are going to vote against them. And obviously, that includes younger voters, uh, people in college. So, this this provision of the HR one tries to help to uh, to sort of tamp that down some, and allow the voice of younger people to come through like it hasn't ever really before in our in the history of our country. It's very, very interesting. And and I like the context that you've provided, especially as it relates to the historicity of the way, I guess, the phenomenological approach that people are taking to interfacing with our democracy. And and so bearing that in mind, I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to look at two more points. Obviously, there are many points about the promotion of election integrity um, within HR1, but I want to talk specifically to you and, and get your opinion on Supreme Court ethics reform and lobbyist disclosure. 
Oh, okay. So, so I want to ask you maybe a little bit about what is it about the Supreme Court that is different from other U.S. judges, and how might HR one in practice actually help adjust that? Yes, yes, good question, Benjamin. Well, uh, Title Seven of HR one would require new ethical standards for Supreme Court justices and presidential appointees. Uh, it, it would strengthen the enforcement of rules that preside over foreign agents operating in the U.S. And it would intensify the lobbying disclosure disclosure rules. So if we want good governance, Benjamin, we should hold our Supreme Court of the U.S. justices to a code of conduct that supports the neutrality and transparency of our courts. You know, we really need to reverse some of the dangerous politicization of the Supreme Court and build public trust in its independence and, and integrity. So H.R. 1 is a courageous, transformative collection of re- reforms which reinforces democracy and restores political power to the people by making it easier, not harder to vote and control of big money in politics and would guarantee that officials work for the public interest. So this provision would require a code of ethics for the Supreme Court. It's the only branch of government that doesn't have to follow a specific ethical code of conduct, nor does it have an independent method of enforcement to address allegations of wrongdoing. Now, other members of the judiciary have to follow a canon of formal ethical guidelines. Further, the court's nine justices are the only U.S. judges, state or federal, not bound by a a written code of ethical conduct. So all other federal judges are required to abide by the official code of conduct for United States judges, which compels them to uphold the integrity and the independence of the judiciary and governs matters such as recusal. Uh, financial disclosure, outside employment, uh, partisan political engagement, and gifts. I mean, don't you think, Benjamin, that it's time that we held our nation's highest court to the same standard as everyone else? I do think so. And and I wonder, you know, to this point, if I may, and maybe this is just more of an opinion-based question, but do you think that there is a risk of the Supreme Court losing some level of legitimacy in the eyes of Americans if there is not ethics reform? Oh, absolutely. I, and in fact, the last few years, I think maybe it has lost a little bit of its luster that, uh, you know, when, when you see some people can be put on the Supreme Court that have such questionable backgrounds, just that in itself, I, I think would uh, would tarnish the the, the name that the Supreme Court's enjoyed for 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 many, many years. It's risky, right? Because in in some way, us in the nonpartisan space, we don't want to get we don't want to wade in too deep, but we've always felt like in, you know, at least certain circles in the student voting network that um, the more reactionary their rulings are, the less likely people are to feel as though um, a court is representative of the wishes of you know, uh, Americans of students. And it's a really interesting point. And, and I appreciate you um, offering that information up to our listeners, um, which leads me again to the to the last point about lobbyist disclosure. I, I, you know, asked about it a little bit before, but to me, it seems like lobbyist disclosure is super relative, not only to all of the other points that we've talked about, but also Supreme Court ethics. Lobbyists have a very long storied history in the United States. They've been accused of influence peddling. They have influence peddled, but maybe walk our listeners through a little bit more, um, just as our final point about how lobbyist disclosures would actually be beneficial 
um, and what within HR one would make lobbyist disclosure the law of the land? Well, the Lobbying Disclosure Act, or the LDA, is a crucial federal law forcing disclosure of efforts to influence the federal government and public opinion, but it's also been criticized for its deficiencies. Um, individuals who avoid direct contact with, with, the, with a federal official or who don't spend 20% of their time on quote-unquote lobbying activities for a particular client can circumvent activating the LDA's registration requirements, which some have criticized as enabling so-called shadow lobbyists. So shadow lobbying refers to the behind-the-scenes secret assistance that, that formerly elected officials often make their, their post-government living on without having to register as federal lobbyists and disclose who's paying for their influence. So the, lo the, the uh, Lobbying Disclosure Act attempts to regulate that. Now, the LDA would reduce by half the amount of time that a person can engage in lobbying activity without, without having to register. And it would significantly expand who might be considered a lobbyist. Just two weeks of intense lobbying activity across a three-month period could trigger registration, as could less than one hour of lobbying activity a day across those same uh, three months. So it attempts to regulate shadow lobbying, and this provision would would expand coverage to include those who counsel uh, on, on lobbying issues, even if they don't directly contact federal officials. Now, the act also requires registered lobbyists to identify themselves accordingly when making any kind of lobbying contact, uh, to identify the client on whose behalf they're lobbying, and to indicate whether their client's a foreign entity. This subtle amendment of a vague or murky identification requirement under the current law will make it difficult to have general lobbying discussions with covered officials without mentioning the client's interest behind the effort. So this law also would forbid paid lobbying activity for a government that the president's concluded to have to engaged in blatant human rights violations. So yeah, it would be a really good addition to the to this comprehensive set of, of bills, Benjamin. Adding to the tool belt of democracy, I think, is always valuable. Um, and I know that's that's not a very controversial opinion, but it's just important to reaffirm the fact that, you know, elections deserve integrity and security. And H.R. 1, uh, in whatever piece it currently exists right now, wherever it is, um, spiritually or incorporeally, you know, wherever it is in the world, we wish that these um election integrity promotions would occur and it's sad to think that we will be continuing on in a democracy where um, these fixes cannot be provided but nevertheless i know that the student voting network is grateful for the time that you've taken to talk to us about election integrity and election security dr williams thank you so much for being here with us today well benjamin i want to extend the same gratitude to you uh, for inviting me to, to take part in this conversation with you. And and uh, I hope that your listeners uh, gain some, some bit of wisdom from it and, and maybe take some action on it themselves. I'm sure they will. Thanks again for your time. Thank you so much, Benjamin. To get involved with the Student Voting Network podcast, just email us at svncast at campusvoteproject.org. One more time, that's svncast at campusvoteproject.org. Thanks for listening and keep organizing.